and welcome to another series of Staying In with me, Jan Powell. With the COVID epidemic not going away anytime soon, I'm stuck at home in France, this time with an overnight curfew. So I'm continuing my global journey, meeting people online in distant and sometimes exotic places, talking about the odd and unusual ways they're finding to get through these lockdown days. Battling this latest lockdown got me thinking about people who don't have the luxury of staying in. The frontline workers out in the thick of it. People like Peter Scott Bowden, working for the World Food Programme in Afghanistan, a country that's been in a state of war for over four decades. Peter's job is organising the humanitarian response to disasters, whether man-made or natural. And when I spoke to him in Kabul, he was on the front line of getting vital food supplies to over 8 million people in extreme need. Many live in remote areas, controlled by warlords or local leaders who are suspicious of outsiders. Getting life-saving supplies to them is hard enough at the best of times. How on earth do you manage when a global pandemic is added to the mix? Peter, hello. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, Jan. And yourself? I'm good, thank you. Um, You're talking to us from Afghanistan in Kabul, the capital. Um, Are you actually in any kind of lockdown there or is it business as usual? Yeah, so business as usual here is quite unusual. We have at the moment uh, restrictions on movement and it's not just due to COVID, it's also to do with the security situation. So um, we have heavy security here within the capital of Kabul and uh, as we have in with all our offices across Afghanistan. Uh, at the moment, we're employing also uh, protocols with regards to um, COVID itself. So that does have some limitations in terms of what we can do. How we yeah, work. so you're really on double lockdown. Yeah, there's a kind of double lockdown, although we, we do move because we're responsible for assisting about 14 million people at the moment. So it's a, it's a massive operation that we're undertaking here in Afghanistan. You've just uh, been down to Kandahar in the south of the country. Um, can you tell me uh, a bit about the journey? How did the journey go? Yeah, the journey was OK. Um, so starting from early morning, uh, we leave the compound uh, with armoured vehicles. Frequently on a day-to-day basis, there are um, unfortunately explosions within the city, uh, vehicle uh, IEDs, we call them, um, incendiary explosive devices uh, that have been uh, let off by insurgents in different parts of the city. So you have to be very careful about your timing when you move to airport locations. And then we get to the airport, got on one of our aircraft, we, we run a our own air fleet in Afghanistan. So we flew down. The plane wasn't full, which is a bit of a relief for me. It's quite nice when you've got a bit of space on the plane. It's a fairly small plane. And we then arrived into Kandahar, which is one of my, um, I I enjoy going to Kandahar. Um, It's a huge airfield at Kandahar and you can see what was there before, uh, huge military uh, warehouses, aircraft hangars, etc., many of which are now empty due to the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, so the flight was good, and it's, it's, it's great looking out the window, seeing, seeing the terrain, uh, the mountains. 
Yeah, I remember that journey, actually, because I did a filming trip there in 2009 and we flew across that central um, part of Afghanistan. And the mountain ranges seem to go on forever. Um, It's just uh, incredible vistas, no roads, intense blue skies. Um, Exactly. It it does look extraordinary. It's a reminder of of, um, how that country before this this very difficult time, what it was. I mean, it could have been or could be a fantastic tourist destination. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, when I was a when I was a child, I, I was uh, part of my upbringing was in New Delhi. My family was posted uh, to India, and uh, two of my sisters made the trip overland by bus, you know, across Europe through um, Central Asia and through down through. Uh, Afghanistan. And I remember talking to them about, you know, coming through Afghanistan and how wonderful it was, completely at peace. Uh, But that was before 79, when the war started. So that's over 41 years ago, uh, that this country's had these problems. Yeah, thinking about talking to you, it was a reminder of um, just how long this period of insecurity and, and, um, yeah, a desperate situation for the people in Afghanistan. I mean, how on earth do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Well, by great fortune, of course, I'm not having to live in the harsh conditions that they have to live. For the people of Afghanistan, it's incredibly rough, incredibly rough. The day-to-day life of an Afghani is requires immense resilience, um, you know, access to just basic things that we take for granted back home, healthcare, um, school with materials, um, sports, recreation. It's, it's, it's something that they don't, they don't have. Having said that, even with the enormous suffering that they go through, one of the things that always lifts me, especially when I'm able to get away from behind my desk here in Kabul out to the field, is to actually meet with with the Afghan people on a regular basis in their villages, look at the projects that we're doing, working with them. You know, it's it's those smiles and their, I suppose, incredible, indomitable spirit that they've got that that really motivates you. And whenever I come back from from the field, everyone can see me smiling because you are uplifted by working um, with such remarkable people. What's it like getting food supplies out to people, you know, in desperate need? Um, I saw some photographs recently on Twitter, which were just amazing, showing these massive convoys um, lurching along potholed mud tracks up mountains across rivers. Um, can you paint us a little picture of what it's like going on one of those convoys and what kind of receptions you get at the end of it? Well, the first thing is actually planning the convoy. So without being too technical, it's it's um, one of the great things that we've seen over the years, especially in the last uh, decade or so, is that a lot of the food that we provide for the Afghan people is actually produced within Afghanistan. So that's a great thing. Uh, we have a, a mix, as you probably know, we have a mixed basket of food that we provide. So they've got the right sort of kilocalorie content, 
but what they require to maintain an appropriate nutrition uh, level, what we call a food basket. Um, the other associated commodities aside from wheat flour, where we purchase from, from the country, comes in from outside. Um, so we have external huge shipping operations and a lot of the ships come through and arrive at Karachi. And then it's that, that journey begins from the port and then comes to warehouses, which are based in the major provincial capitals across the country. Um, and then from that location, they are organized and we did make these deliveries to forward locations across the country as well. You know, we're, we're, we're currently um, assisting about 8 million people so far this year. You know, our target is, is still 14 million people, uh, but we have to deal with the resources that we've got to get the food that we're, we're moving. So the planning for the, these convoys isn't simple. We have challenges of terrain and we have major challenges of security because of the conflict and the different areas within the country that are controlled by the government and then the areas controlled by the Taliban. And then there are areas, what we call disputed areas in the middle. So prior to convoy movements, which is happening on a regular, every nearly every day, uh, there's communication with teams on the ground who then are negotiating and ensuring that we can get access to the populations on the other side of potentially a disputed uh, front line. On top of the physical difficulties, the lack of communication, the difficult roads, uh, communities at war or communities suffering the impacts of war, you've then got a pandemic. Um, now, your, your official role in Afghanistan, I think if I got it right, is head of COVID surge for the WFP. Is that the correct title? The, um, we've got a management team here within the country. And because of covid Arriving in Afghanistan, I've come to lend some support to the operation. So what, what does that involve? I mean, how are people coping with COVID on top of everything else that they've got to put up with? It's, well, they're coping very well right now, given the new ways of working, and which is, you know, universal. You know, it's difficult to have face-to-face -face meetings, but because the work has to continue, we have to uh, mitigate uh, the likelihood, the impact of, of getting the virus as much as possible. Uh, there's a twin track to this. On the one side, we're dealing with our own personal health and safety. But at the same time, we're, we're taking extra measures, very careful measures to make sure that we do not become a vector to the people that we're trying to assist. Of course, yes. You don't want to be taking COVID into areas or going into distant areas. You don't want to be taking COVID with you. Yeah, exactly. But food needs to move. And if food doesn't move, then then people get will get hungry. And uh, and if they don't get enough, they'll migrate. So we have to be extremely, we have to take uh, measured risks. So a lot of the job is about um, risk mitigation strategies to make sure that we take practical steps. So, for example, we work across the country with... Uh, about 90 non-governmental organizations, many of whom are, are national organizations. 
you know, really, really remarkable people. To me, they are the real heroes of of the operation. Uh, the people at the end of the the long logistic supply chain, they're the people who deliver the food. So we work with these teams. These teams have had to not just educate, I wouldn't use the word educate, inform uh, the potential caseload that we're there to assist, but also to make sure that we have appropriate health and safety procedures when we're doing the distribution. So if you're doing a distribution to maybe normally 5,000 people up a valley, we're cutting it to 2,000 or 2,500. We're making sure that we have appropriate spacing, uh, signage, so when people come forward, they're not in big crowds. And so that has made things take a little bit longer at times. Things that we could have done a little bit more swiftly takes that much longer because of the safety and health precautions that we have to have to take ourselves. Yeah. So is it part of your job or, or rather the WFP's job? Um, do you see it as your role to teach people about how to protect themselves from catching this disease? Is that is that part of what you do? I mean, I imagine social distancing and hand washing and things must be quite difficult to do where you where you don't have unending access to clean water or um yeah, large, spacious houses to live in. How, how does how do you cope with that? Yeah, so, you know, the primary responsibility for the communications and the uh, the messaging on what, you know, they technically call non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, social distancing, hand-washing, et cetera, making sure that people don't congregate in big crowds, is done through the Ministry of Health. So they take the leadership for that. And they are supported by the World Health Organization and organizations like UNICEF. And they're they're doing an extremely tough job in trying to make sure that messaging, that support, uh, not just in terms of advice to the population, but also practical measures such as equipping the health clinics across the country with the appropriate equipment. WFP, on the other hand, um, has a huge reach right the way across the country. And so we have to make sure that we use the opportunity that when we're giving food to people, um, millions of people, that we are not becoming a vector. We don't want our food distribution site to become a Petri dish and to further deepen the, um, the onsurge of the virus. So how hard is it to get people to observe social distancing? Um, do they, I mean, it must be it must be pretty tricky for you too when you go out there and you're meeting old friends or you're meeting, I don't know, community leaders. How, how does, is, is that an easy thing to do or does it have its own difficulties? Well, there's, you know, there's such kind people and, and receptive people. Uh, I was out in the field about uh, a month ago visiting what we call one of our check dams. It was an irrigation project that we were doing. And, um, you know, the normal greeting is normally to to hug. And, of course, I stopped just a few metres short and I sort of put both my hands together and did a little bow and then they laughed and, they, you know, they probably thought, you know, who is this funny foreigner? Yeah, he's doing, of course, he's not going to hug us. But they didn't mind at all. They didn't mind at all. And, um, you know, in a rather amusing way, as I put my hand on my heart as well, I, I, I took out a, a hand sanitizer and showed that to them. And they said, 
Oh, yes, 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 yes. Very important. Yeah. Um, that we, we, we are washing our hands. We're making sure that all the people on this engineering project, this massive dam that we've been working on, or they had been working on, um, that they did, they were, they were employing that. Now, it gets more difficult, though, uh, for that practice to be adhered. You know, when you drive uh, between locations in Kabul, you realize that people are living a very much a hand-to-mouth existence in many circumstances and that people have to have to get onto that bus. That bus has maybe already got, you know, uh, 90% occupancy, but that person needs to go to work. If he doesn't go to work, he won't get his he won't get the the money that he requires to feed his family. So whilst the messaging is out there, and we in particular, at all our activities will ensure that uh, there is full compliance and it's easier for us to encourage that because people want to receive the assistance but for the majority of the population it's very very difficult for them to adhere to all the advice that they get from from the ministry of health and is it a cultural thing is it uh, is it that that people are more do touch i mean when people meet that it, it's it's uh, it goes against the sort of cultural habits not to not to reach out to people. Yes, yes, I think it is cultural. It's certainly cultural in, in greeting when you know the families the families here are, are very large and they keep very connected and they're very loyal to each other. And so when a, a family member dies, um, it is expected for you to go to that funeral and that funeral will be in a very short space of time because of the burial procedures that they have and uh, when they get to that funeral there will be lots of their relatives many of whom they may not have seen for a while they may have may have driven overnight or for long hours to get to that location but when they meet each other they have to hug each other Um, it's part of the culture so there's been extensive efforts made by the who and unicef and and other ministries uh, to try to get people to to think very carefully about giving that hug, but uh, from what I hear from colleagues, it's it's pretty hard not to. Uh, and there's a, there's almost a stigmatization that if you attend a funeral and you don't hug, then your relatives who may have come from a long, long way away may take great offence in not being hugged. I'm particularly interested to know what the impact of the virus has been on on women. Um, I guess the extent to which women tend to be more enclosed, tend to be spend more time at home, has that protected them or has that been a problem in its own right? It's a very good question. I was just reading the latest update that came in um, tonight. In fact, the uh, the majority of the recorded deaths were, have been men between the ages of 50 and uh, 79 or 80. And men account for uh, about 70% of the confirmed cases on that's from the Ministry of Health data, which is an interesting thing. Maybe you're right that it is because of uh, employment opportunities are very, very much more for men than they are for women. Afghanistan's got a long way to go to to, uh, sort of shift those figures. 
But, yeah, uh, we've seen huge strides in the status of women in Afghanistan in recent years. But I guess out yeah. in the countryside, yeah. that takes a long time to to change attitudes, traditions. It's still a very traditional society, isn't it? I mean, I remember being struck when I was there that, you know, being a woman living in the countryside in Afghanistan, not a great, uh, you haven't really drawn the long straw. Uh, one of the one of the disturbing things that we've seen from other reports from from the UN is that uh, there's been an increase in domestic violence also in Afghanistan. Uh, something that I think also has been reflected in some other countries across the world. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? How um, our experiences of this disease have similarities. They're, they're reflected in very many different cultures. Well, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, I suppose. Um, and to talk a little bit about that, the, the other forms of pressure, economic pressure, we had certainly in the first wave when uh, there were blockages uh, on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, huge blockages. We even had some convoys stuck in traffic jams for over 40 kilometers. Um, those protocols, by the way, have now been sorted out between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So there's much, much better freedom of movement between the two countries. But um, that has exacerbated um, the economic climate. And I think the World Bank uh, estimate for quite uh, some considerable, about 5.5% shock on GDP uh, for the country, and that's something that the country cannot really afford. Peter, we we met just a few weeks ago, um, virtually, of course, uh, it was online, at the Geneva Peace Week conference, uh, where you were speaking as the WFP senior advisor to the CCHN, the Centre for Competence in Humanitarian Negotiation. Um, Now, you mentioned negotiation a little earlier in our conversation. Um, This really must be a a key skill in uh, both your job and the job of your teams. But for the outsider, can you you give um, a practical example of where you and your staff need good negotiating skills to get your job done or where things can break down, where there is a lack of that? I think it's 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 an interesting concept for people who are not involved in your world when we deliver this assistance that we deliver across the country and when i say you know pretty big we there not just wfp but other humanitarian actors our ability to gain credibility with people who control territory is by our own integrity our independence and our neutrality, and the, the, this is this is something that you can't dictate. You have to forge those relationships. You have to explain the purpose and the benefit of what you're doing. When it gets difficult, it gets difficult when one side believes that you're going to be providing assistance to another side that they are militarily engaged with. And that requires extreme extreme levels of patience of which the Afghan uh, partners that we have are extremely good negotiators. So negotiation is about anticipating and building trust. So the person that you wish to 
to uh, gain permission for convoys to move through their territory, that they understand the benefits of doing so. You know, in as you, you probably recall, you know, here you have what they call the jerga, and the jerga is something where people reconcile their differences at the village level. And um, it's a kind of council, a local council. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And people from a very young age, uh, the young are able to sit at the back of the council and to observe. And so there is a culture of understanding about listening to people and being measured in terms of understanding the problems and then working through the problems. So in a operation similar to what we have here in Afghanistan, it's also a time of tension because we've seen the security increased uh, a violence level that we haven't seen for five years. And this is all to do with the backdrop of the negotiations that are going on in Qatar, in Doha, uh, where they're trying to bring, well, they are bringing uh, both the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan together to see if they can work towards a peace deal. Basically, you your negotiation is is really to at, at various levels along your route to where you want to get your food to. You are crossing different territories. You're meeting different people, and you need to bring them with you and persuade them and uh, create that understanding that that what you're doing is in their interests. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's not. It's, there are no other, yeah, possible reasons why you should be trying to get into that territory. Exactly, exactly. So maintaining your operational independence um, is crucial, and as I mentioned earlier on, we have ninety different partners, so ninety different organisations working at district level. Um, so you have what we call frontline negotiations, and some of the tools and methods that the CCHN have developed um, are helpful for for our teams in the field and our partners in the field. But overall, I would say our partners in the field are, are very, very, very good in negotiators anyway, um, because of all their experience. Um, remarkable people. I won't ask you what happens when it goes wrong. I, <laughs> have you ever had big convoys held up for hours? Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, frequently things do go wrong. Um, and there are different levels because, of course, you know, as you would expect, there's, you know, you have political negotiations, professional negotiations, technical negotiations. And uh, on a sort of convoy, per se, that would be very much uh, a technical negotiation. But prior to that convoy moving, you would have already done your homework and done your professional negotiations at the appropriate level, whether it's dealing with high authorities or whether it's dealing with um, what we call guarantee letters that we have to get from uh, the Taliban, for example. And so there are different levels within the process. Uh, one of the most important things about negotiation is to maintain the relationship. So even if things do go wrong, uh, to maintain an understanding about why things may have gone wrong, and you then got to come back and chisel at it again, to uh, maybe revise your strategy um, to look at other options. We're moving into a new phase, I guess, um, as the Vaccine Express comes into view. Vaccines are on their way. It's going to be difficult, isn't it, to get vaccines to people 
in Afghanistan as well as into other so-called developing countries. And are there indeed other um, obstacles? For example, do people accept vaccination? Is this something that people will welcome or, or, or how do you think it's going to go? You know, it's very, very difficult. I was meeting meeting a friend of mine from UNICEF the other day and he was, I was asking him about the challenges of the polio vaccination that they've been undertaking, especially on the uh, eastern side of Afghanistan. And I was sort of vaguely familiar with that because we used to work with the UNICEF teams when I was based in Pakistan a number of years ago and understanding the different the difficulties and the uh, ethnic and cultural considerations with vaccination in what they call FATA, which is that area whereby families intermarry, they cross the border frequently from Pakistan to Afghanistan. And this is the the Bataan people, many of whom don't really recognize the borders themselves. And I was asking him how things were going, and he said it's still extremely difficult, their campaigns, just to do the polio. So I think we've got very big challenges ahead with the, uh, with the COVID one. You know, one of, the, one of the first challenges will be, of course, you know, which vaccine to accept. So the government has to decide which, which one they want. I guess it's which one they want and which one they can get, because there's going to be a queue for these vaccines, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it may be it may be quite a long time before before Afghanistan gets gets the vaccines themselves. And then you, you I think your question was alluding to the fact the practical distribution, the storage, the maintenance, the cold chain requirements of having such a vaccination program across the country will be very, very difficult. Now, on a personal level, Peter, going back to the beginning of all this, you left the UK in May, um, having gone through lockdown in London with your family. Um, And now you're under Kabul in Afghanistan, also under lockdown of its own kind. Um, How does it compare? Well, I wasn't in London. I was actually in a lovely little village in North Essex. Um, And it was quite nice, actually, uh, working from home. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't get back to Geneva uh, because lockdown had occurred, and um, so I was worked from home for about five or six weeks. And then I got a email from a good friend of mine who it was one of those emails that you just can't say no to. So I came to Afghanistan. Um, what you know, one of the one of the things you of course miss is of course you miss your family um, enormously. But with amazing technology now, you can. You can send messages, you can talk on WhatsApp and Zoom and and stay connected. I suppose, you know, one of the nice things here is that generally when I say things to my colleagues, people people listen and they do what they're told. <laughs> but um, it, that's not always the way when I'm back home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm well put in my place by my family and my children. Yeah. So is there anything through this period of lockdown, um, whether in the UK or in Kabul, that you've, uh, has, has enabled you to do something differently or has in any way changed the way you do things? Has it had a, an impact at a, yeah, at a deeper level maybe than having to wash your hands every, every 10 minutes? Yeah, I suppose the, um, the sort of positive thing I would say to that is that, um, 
public health is so important and it's so cross-cutting. And sometimes humanitarian organisations can kind of forget that. You know, we've got to use this as an opportunity to move things forward, uh, to increase investment, certainly in places like Afghanistan, where public health is just so, so weak in comparison to many other countries. I worked on two other pandemics. I worked on H5N1 and H1N1 uh, back in 2004, 2005, then 2010. And the significant efforts to to better prepare the world for a pandemic. Uh, and then one of the interesting things was after those two pandemics, people were very focused on a highly virulent virus of an influenza pandemic. And, th and this isn't a highly virulent virus. It's actually quite low key, the type, the nature of the virus. And it's stealth to be able to go sort of under the radar is something that uh, we've got to really think about very carefully for the future. Finally, of course, this is a question I always like to ask. Um, your answer can be important or trivial, as you like, but what are you looking forward to most when this period in your life, when this pandemic is ancient history? Now, you probably want me to give you a, a nice answer, like learning carpentry. or Actually, I want to have a party, a big family party uh, with, our, with our friends back home. That to me is probably the number one on my list. And uh, that's something we normally do in December of every year to invite our friends and relatives uh, around. And that's something I'd like to do with great gusto when this is over. I think we should all be wanting to do that. I mean, I really miss just being in a crowd. In the summer, one of the greatest things was just being able to be out, sitting in a cafe, having people around you. Um, and yeah, here we are back in solitary. I uh, hope you're going to enjoy that party when you finally get there, Peter. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, look forward to seeing you in Geneva at some point. Look forward to it, Jan. Thank you very much indeed. That was Staying In with me, Jan Powell. It's been a family affair. Thanks to Hugo Powell and Ken Nikravesh for the music and to Hugo for audio production. And thank you for listening, if you've made it this far. Do please subscribe and share if you found it interesting. There'll be another one along very soon. <laughs>